Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, let's get it done. It's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, y'all, it's David Summers. This is the story of wrestling in America, as told by the Tennessee stud, whose family started the profession over 100 years ago. Let's step back into the ring and back into time. Let's get wall to wall and treetop tall. With the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, congratulations. Studcast overnight have become the talk of old school wrestling fans everywhere. Listen, I've kind of known that this has been the deal out there for a long time. You have captured and created a new following all over the world just with the last couple of Studcast, stud. It's, it's been kind of amazing to me, man. It's amazing because there's so few wrestling fans around the world, and especially in America, had no idea was being what was being said by Vince McMahon Jr. or spokesman for his company to Google about huge how huge wrestling had become compared to the territories that it had replaced. And in his first years of operation after killing the territories, and maybe for all the years that he's been in, in business, all he had to do was say uh, in, to the information giant Google that his wrestling company was bigger than wrestling had ever been, and they printed it, whether it was true or not. <laughs> so, so, you know, so the Google article about his New Jersey tax problem, uh, which is the one I'm referring to, basically, uh, in these last two studcasts, uh, the, that is, that ended, uh, you know, uh, that problem ended what would what he was saying about wrestling being scripted, you know, that's what it was talking about. And it was a great example of what I'm saying at this point. At the end of the article, when his company had admitted wrestling was scripted, did he or Google make the claim his wrestling was bigger hmm. than the sport had ever been? And if not, where did that idea come from? And, uh, and do you think Google assigned somebody the task of, tracking down all the dead territories, TV numbers and attendance figures, <laughs> or did they just take Vince McMahon Jr.'s word for it? That's a good point, Stud. Did, did they do the research to prove that McMahon's company was truly more successful than all the territories and wrestling companies combined in the past? Right. So, you know, when man Jr. was the only major uh, company left in wrestling and, uh, who else was Google going to ask about it right? before making that claim that his company was bigger than wrestling had ever been? <laughs> so where did they get those uh, so-called facts? I know. Here we go again. 
I would love to know the answer to that question. So I, I got a feeling you're going to come up with something. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's kind of a simple question, Dave. Uh, you know, my numbers are provided, the ones that I've provided in the last two studcasts, <laughs> say that it isn't so, you know. Uh, and so Vince, well, you know, is, is Vince company, or was it really the biggest in attendance and TV audience? Or did the Google people just take his word for it? Again, I think you're right. And I think you kind of proved that. Well, I think you did prove that last week. Really a fascinating subject. But we've got a great stud cast ahead of us this week for certain. Maybe somebody out there would have an answer for that question in addition to what you've provided. So my question is, where are we going to be riding today, stud? Well, we're going to go back, man, to my grandfather Roy's time for uh, our our next hidden history lesson that we've been doing the last uh, six or eight uh, stud casts. And to the days of, we're going back to the days of the original Dutch Mantel. Uh, and no, I know everybody out there is going, wait a minute, to, you know, we know who Dutch is, but we're not talking about the Dutch that everybody out there knows as, as Dutch Mantel. We're talking about, we're going to be talking about Alfred de la Rigardo, born in Dykirk, Luxembourg in 1881, and he arrived in America in 1900. And his life, this guy's life, is a truly amazing story. And uh, to find out more about him, uh, you can Google him. But when you Google him, you got to Google the original Dutch Mantel, or you're going to get our Dutch that we're all familiar with. So uh, that's just the beginning uh, of this ride, man. It's going to take uh, my grandfather into the traveling carnivals for his first paid wrestling experience. And uh, he was turned on to them by, uh, obviously, uh, the original Dutch Mantel. And uh, that's where Roy's going to wrestle from anywhere from three times to ten times a day. Not against other wrestlers, but with challengers from the crowd, the carnival's crowd. <laughs> so uh, then we're going to pick up where we left off last studcast with that one-night tournament. And me versus Luthez in the finals. And we're going to ride into Mobile's 10,000-seat main arena in this one, man. And we're going to see who's going to meet Harley Race for the NWA World Championship and who's going to walk away with the 10 pounds of gold. And we'll also talk about the TV show that promoted the NWA World Championship match, the results of all the matches and the attendances in the southeastern Gulf Coast uh, territories, three largest cities, as we usually do. And if we got enough time after all that, Dave, we're going to have another learning tree question. Oh, good deal. This sounds like another another fantastic stud cast following two record setters in a row. So, so take us to Amarillo, Texas, where your grandfather Roy was about to meet one of the meanest wrestlers in the history of the sport. Lay it out for us. All right, my man. Uh, and, you know, when I say the meanest wrestlers in the history of the sport, if people Google him and they find this original Dutch Mantel, <laughs> wait till you see this dude's picture. <laughs> it says it all. You know? So, so uh, the original Dutch Mantel uh, taught my grandfather Roy to wrestle. Uh, basically, from about 1921 to 1924, Roy went and worked out with uh, the original Dutch Mantel. But not, uh, not before on two occasions. Uh, first two times that Roy went, uh, he got his wrist broke on the first workout. He was gone until his wrist got well. He came back, uh, and on the second workout, he got his ribs broken. 
So, you know, and, you know, and, and, I, and that was done on purpose back in the old days. You know, the wrestlers didn't want to train people. They didn't want anybody being in the business that they didn't know that, uh, you know, could keep their mouth shut and could handle what the business was all about, you know. So uh, so after his training, you know, they, they wanted to make sure, uh, Dutch wanted to make sure that Roy had the guts and a true desire to be a wrestler. And that's what everybody did uh, from then all the way into the 70s and 80s. You treated people that wanted to be wrestlers with uh, you made you found out if they had respect and what kind of person they were before you would train them. Mm. So Dutch had worked for many years, man, uh, you know, uh, to to, you know, he didn't he didn't want to train anybody. So, he you know. He took the place, you know, where many shooters that, that wrestlers would carry that really get, really hurt you. He was the type of shooter, obviously, that did nothing but train you to how to hurt people, to, to learn the true uh, shooting concept that, uh, Jesus, that, that day is totally gone now. So today I'm going to tell the story. My grandfather told me that I, when I was about 12 years old, one of those rides to Memphis, about the strangest relationship between <laughs> wrestling and the traveling carnivals. You know, I remember a number of months ago, I asked you, wait a minute, there are two Dutch Mantels, right? And you said, yes. So my question is, the Dutch Mantel we all know came from the Dutch Mantel your f- grandfather knew. Is that correct? <laughs> well, uh, not exactly. Uh, the Dutch Mantel we all know, real name is Wayne Cowan. And uh, Wayne asked my father uh, when Dutch started wrestling, and he wrestled for me in uh, the Southeastern Territory starting about 1974, early 1975, as partners uh, with a guy from England that uh, was his partner. And uh, and he was wrestling as a day, Wayne Cowan. And uh, so Wayne, my dad came and visited us one time, and, uh, you know, Dutch sat down with my dad, and, you know, he said... Uh, you know, I don't like my name, and I need to have a different type of name. Do you have any suggestions? He, he basically said, you know, can you recommend a better name for me, Some, a name that I, I wouldn't be more fitting as a wrestler? So Dad told him the story of the real Dutch Mantel and how he trained Roy to wrestle, and, uh, and basically the rest is history. That's how Wayne Cowan became Dutch Mantel. <laughs> so Roy, after surviving uh, two years training with the original Dutch Mantel, he traveled for the next year, two years in 23, 1923 and part of 1924 with Carnival around Texas, New Mexico and Oklahoma out in that area. And obviously he spent every day and every night wrestling against any person from the Carnival crowds that challenged him. And if they won, I think they told me they got $5, which, you know, didn't sound like much back in uh, in the time I got this story in the 50s. But uh, it was a lot of money way back in the 1900s (laughs) or early 1900s. (laughs) So so he told me, he said, I wasn't the only wrestler on the traveling troop on the carnival. And he said the carnival was a big one. And, uh, And he said there were two other wrestlers with him every day. And uh, they would go out on the bally. Okay, I got to get educated here. What is a, what is a bally? Well, a bally was kind of like a stage, and it was out in front of the big tent where inside the tent the wrestling ring was located. Okay, so a man called the Barker, 
uh, he would announce to the crowd all the information about what went on inside the tent behind him. And, uh, and the three wrestlers would stand up on the ballet on the stage with him. And uh, he, they were the guys that uh, were going to accept challenges from mm-hmm. anybody in the crowd. Mm-hmm. So Roy was not a huge guy. In the early 20s, uh, Roy was only 5'8", and that about uh, 150 pounds, he said, when he was wrestling on the ballet. So he was by far the smallest of the three wrestlers that were up there on the stage. But because of uh, Dutch Mantell had trained him, man, he was he was the toughest of the three. He was the best of the three. They had not been trained by a guy like Dutch Mantell. So Roy said every time they went up on the ballet, and they were up there during the day, and then they'd go back at night again and do these things, that the carnival barker would make the announcement for the challengers. And uh, because Roy was the smallest of the three wrestlers, he always got the first challenger. You know, they, nobody's nobody picked the big guys. Obviously, mm-hmm. <laughs> they wanted to say, "I might can beat that little shorter one there." Yeah, you know. So, uh, so many times he said he got he was the, he got the only challengers, especially when the men faced you know twice his size. You know, uh, and then what would do, what he would do is he would have these people, big old people, big old guys, or anybody who wanted to make the challenge good, and uh, and he had them all screaming. So, you know, it was like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> but they said the guys, the, obviously the crowd thought, well, I wonder how tough the big guys are if the little one is this bad. So so then the carny barker and the carnival, the carnival people were called carnies. So the carny barker, you know, he did his best to find all three of them a challenger mm-hmm. when he did these things. And uh, But most times Roy had more than one challenger because he was obviously the smallest. So then once the challenges were made, then the tickets were sold to the crowd, and then everybody went into the tent in the back for the action. Mm. Your your grandfather was more than a foot shorter than you are and weighed probably half of what you weighed, even <laughs> back in your day. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. He, he was he was a lot shorter than, than me, and as I got older and older, uh, wow, the distance kept getting greater and greater. So, uh, yeah, that's correct, you know. And uh, and normally every generation gets a little bigger than the generation before it. I'm bigger than my dad. My dad was bigger than his dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was 50 years ago and two generations ago. And, uh, you know, and uh, and as an example, I got a grandson that may be going to be bigger than me. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, he's already there practically at 16. So uh, no yeah. doubt he's going to probably be bigger than me. This is great stuff, Stud. You know, when we talk about it at the beginning of the show, how your family started the profession of wrestling over 100 years ago, this is what we're talking about right now. And I think that is so cool. All right. Did he always win? And how many times was he beat? Well, I actually met one myself, you know, and, uh, and, and, he, and he told me, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm very sure this is true. He said he never got beat. You know, and he said there were a few times when someone, you know, would throw an unexpected sucker punch. You know, somebody would be wrestling. So they were supposed to be wrestling and the guy would try to knock him out. And then if he could cover him and they would have to count him out, then he could win the money. But uh, he said, uh, you know, a couple of times that happened, but it didn't make any difference. He never lost. And he beat him anyway. 
So I asked if any of the other wrestlers lost and then what happened when they did. So he said that they were immediately fired on the spot. He said, as soon as that mat, that <laughs> event was over, uh, then uh, the, the head carnies came in and they said, uh, you're, you're gone. And uh, so I would say, well, where did they get the next guy? And Roy said, well, the guy that beat him is the guy they went and got. <laughs> so he said that's how they improved uh, getting tougher and tougher guys that, that, that got beat. They would just take the guy that won and say, hey, you travel with us and we'll pay. We'll make you some money, dude. So wow. it was kind of like a dog-eat-dog world, man. <laughs> That's what it was about. Mm. So uh, this is just the first part of the story. And now I want to get to that strange relationship between wrestlers and car and the carnies themselves. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and since he was traveling with them for more than a year, he learned their language. Okay. What do you mean by their language? I mean, did they have their own way of talking? Is that what you mean? They certainly did. Mm. They, they had their own way, Dave, of talking, and they, and they spoke in their own language. They called it carny, carny language, and, and they could talk to each other right in front of people, and nobody could recognize a single word of what they were saying. So almost all the old wrestlers back at that time and the next generation of wrestlers behind them even, because the old wrestlers like Roy learned to talk carny. He learned to speak carny. And uh, then he would talk to his wrestlers uh, when he was running his own company. And if there was anybody around, he didn't want them to know what he was talking about. He would speak Carney to his wrestlers. So it meant not just Roy's generation, but the next generation of my dad and Lester and that generation, they spoke Carney as well. So, in fact, that's where the word kayfabe comes from. It oh. comes from carnival, carnival times. So it basically meant, uh, you know, when you, when you, said kayfabe and uh, anybody was around it usually meant to shut up if somebody was nearby oh. if you didn't want them to know what you were saying wow okay so that's that's pretty interesting hidden history that you're talking about there right there and a really fascinating lesson in so many ways i'm sure very few people know anything about this lesson so do you have any idea what you're going to be talking about in the next hidden history lesson yeah, yeah, I mean, since we've started here with the Carnies and uh, and back in Roy's day after he before he actually went to uh, Ohio and became a became a a, uh, a star, you know, I think we're going to continue with Roy's next step into the wrestling world. Uh, and then after the carnival, so Roy had trained with one of the greatest shooters in wrestling history for years. Uh, he was sent, uh, you know, and had been sent to the carnivals. And then the Dutch decided, you know, Roy said, hey, you know, I'm done with the carnivals and, uh, you know, I want to go further. So uh, Dutch said, hey, you know, I think you're ready to become a pro. So at 23 years old, my grandfather was sent from Texas out there around uh, Amarillo, Texas, to wrestle in Ohio. Uh, wow. To uh, Columbus, Ohio, as a matter of fact. It was one of the very first territories that was ever started. And, uh, and man, oh man, was he in for a rude awakening. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so we're going to ride east with your grandfather to become a member of an extremely rare group of individuals, professional wrestlers in the 1920s. Are you kidding? These, <laughs> I tell you, these studcasts are really rocking, Ron. So before we go to our break, I can't wait any longer. 
Who is on the card for the world title night? Let's go to Mobile, Alabama. Back into closer to real time. February 26, 1980. Set it up for us. Well, man, this card was truly loaded, man. About as loaded as you can get a wrestling card. The opening match was Roy Lee Welch against the Big C. Uh, Charlie Cook was facing uh, Don Fargo. The United States Junior Heavyweight Championship was on the line. Champion Tony Charles was defending against Crazy Randy Rose at that time. Uh, there was a Southeastern Tag Championship match. Jimmy Golden and Norville Austin, they were the new Southeastern champions. They were defending against my brother Robert and Eddie Boulder. Uh, then for the Southeastern Championship, the champion Mongolian Stomper, managed by Don Carson, was taking on Joe LaDuke. But this time they were going to be in an I quit match where the loser had to give up or say he quit over the building's PA system so that everybody in the building heard it. And, uh, you know, knowing these two guys, Stomper and LaDuke, I mean, who's who's going to actually do that, man? So, you know, uh, so that uh, that was going to be the next match. And then the last match was for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship uh, was Harley Race. And he was defending against me. I had won the tournament against Luthez the week before. So Harley was defending against me. So he was going to defend the NWA World Heavyweight Championship against you. That's it. Wow. That's an amazing card. Four championship matches, the last of which was for the 10 pounds of gold owned by the world's best, the one and only Harley Race. That is so awesome. So that sets us up perfectly for the last part of this stud cast as we get into the second half. When we return after the break, we'll take that now. We'll be discussing one of the biggest nights, not only in Southeastern history, but in wrestling history, period. That's coming up when the break continues on this studcast. Great news, Southeastern Gulf Coast fans. The Tennessee stud Ron Fuller is returning to Alabama in Ozark at the Ozark Civic Center Saturday, March 23rd for the XWX Turmoil event and escorting one of the stars to the ring. Wildcat Wendell Cooley and Scott Armstrong will also be there. The stud will be there at 6 p.m. when doors open to meet and greet fans from all over Alabama, Florida, and Georgia. He'll also have Southeastern t-shirts for only $10, pictures, stud t-shirts, and his bestseller book, Brutus. And the stud is looking forward to taking selfies with the fans. Make your plans now to shake hands with the Tennessee Stud. Saturday, March 23rd, Ozark Civic Center. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back. The second half of this Studcast, which is already history-making, as we've been talking about wrestling from 100 years ago and the Stud's grandfather. All right, Stud, so let's go to the TV show. You can set the scene for the huge event. That's going to be four nights later, Mobile, Alabama. I think earlier we said the date was going to be 1980, like February 27th, I think it was. So let's go to Mobile. This one had to be one of the most important TVs you had ever put together. Well, yeah, it certainly was, man. No doubt about it. I mean, this is really, really an important event because uh, we had only been down there for two years and we didn't have world champion come through very often. And while this was a, an opportunity, I, I felt uh, to really, really do something spectacular. 
So, uh, so it opened, this TV opened up with Charlie Platt. Uh, first, he was telling everybody that this was the last week of these championship matches because we were in that uh, rating period of February. This was going to be the last week of a championship match on TV. And in the one today on this show was going to be the Mongolian Stomper defending his Southeastern heavyweight belt. So uh, plus uh, we were going to be hearing, he said, from the NWA world champion, Harley Race, for the first time live via telephone from Toronto, Canada. So then the new Southeastern tag champions, Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin, they brought their belts to the set for the first TV match. Uh, it was featuring their challengers. The first match was going to be Robert Fuller and Eddie Boulder. You know, we're on the on this huge card coming up against uh, Norvell and uh, Jimmy mm-hmm. for the Southeastern Championship on that Tuesday night. It was in 1980, correct? Mobile's not just the municipal auditorium, but the main arena, which was a big difference. It was the biggest structure on that whole complex. Yeah, I think I said the 27th. It was actually February 26th. You're right on that. So I thought you I thought you never mentioned big cards in the general portion of a TV. Well, normally we didn't, you know, but I decided that this time because Harley was only going to be in one city and not back for a long time. And I knew whatever match would they had, it was going to be a tremendous match. Mm-hmm. Wanted as many people to see it as possible. And, and when we had been almost uh, selling out all three of our major cities each week, anyway, at this point, uh, this event was going to be, in such a huge building that it was going to be so fantastic. I was hoping to lure some fans from the Dothan area and the Montgomery area when they watch this TV show to get in their car and come to Mobile to see it for themselves. And I, I knew that if they did, they were going to go home and they were going to tell everybody about how good this night was. So, uh, so it was just a great way to build the territory. Uh, so then Golden and Austin, uh, you know, uh, they're at the set with the gym, with the Charlie and, the, you know, they're in rare form and bragging and about their uh, flashy new uh, newly won tag team belts. Uh, they were telling Charlie uh, that Eddie Boulder, who was in the ring with Rob, you know, they said uh, there's a guy that uh, has no he's a way out of his league next Tuesday night when we defend the belt to get uh, Robert Fuller and him in Mobile. And they said. They said, oh, and we're going to prove that to you, man. You're going to see that for certain. <laughs> so so he didn't, uh, you know, uh, look at uh, look at his league. You know, he certainly didn't look at his league in the TV match uh, that was going on while they were uh, saying all this. Uh, Robert and Boulder looked like, wow, they look like champions instead of what uh, Jimmy and Norvell were looking at. Eddie Boulder was shining, basically, about the time all this is being said. And uh, Rob and them looked great. And they ended their match, man. They had a beautiful tag team move that uh, I'd never seen before. They must have set this up and talked about it a long time. And uh, they ended up winning, uh, pending both their opponents at the same time off of that same move. So the second TV segment had Tony Charles and his United States Junior Heavyweight belt at the set with him. And Randy Rose, uh, his next opponent, was in the ring at this point. And, uh, Wow, uh, you know, Rose was headed for the top of the cards, man. He had really worked his way up, uh, especially with all these matches with the wrestling pro. And so at this point, he was really becoming a pretty pretty decent star. 
And uh, it was obvious by Tony's comments that he he was impressed with Rose. You know, he was like, wow, this kid is becoming something. So, uh, however, you know, Tony got very upset uh, toward the end of the match because uh, Rose used one of those clotheslines again. And this time he, he did it a little differently. He hit his opponent with the clothesline uh, not one time, but twice. So after he clotheslined him the first time, and he could have beat him right then, he got the guy up on his feet and shot him in the ropes. And then, and then when he went to clothesline him the second time, he ran toward him and he clotheslined him through the ropes and out in the concrete. It was like, son of a gun, it looked like he killed the guy. Wow. And uh, so the referee got a- angry about it. You know, I mean, he didn't he didn't need to do that. And he kind of got in Rose's face uh, before he started counting the young wrestler out. And then, then he had to raise Rose's hand because he won the match. But that wasn't enough for Randy, you know. So he went out on the floor to get the guy who's laying there. He's not even moving. And uh, so then Tony Charles sitting, you know, 30 feet away. And, uh, you know, so he went straight for Rose. And Rose saw him come and he jumped back in the ring. And he invited Tony to come on in. You know, you could hear him screaming at him, come on, get you some, old man. You know, called him an old man. That wasn't good. <laughs> that was not a smart move. You know, so, so, you know, so, you know, he stayed out. Uh, Tony didn't go in. He didn't get suckered into that. You know, he stayed out and he helped the young kid get up. Finally got him up off, off the floor. But, uh, wow, Rose was becoming a killer. Okay. I think Jim Croce was the one who said, you don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit in the wind. You don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger. And you, you don't call the dude an old man. All yeah, right. Don't call Tony Charles an old man. <laughs> I remember how devastating those clotheslines looked back in the day, especially when Rose started doing them with Dennis Condry, when the original Midnight Express was taking shape a couple of years later. All right, so let's move to the personality profile. Set that one up for us. Yeah, it was a very special one, Dave. Uh, Charlie and I were sitting in the personality profile chairs uh, at the normal place where the set was located. And between us was this small table, and it had a telephone sitting on it. Uh, and that had never been on the profile before, and we'd never done anything like that. Uh, so for the first time ever, Charlie was going to have a guest caller at the end of the profile. So its profile started with uh, me and Charlie watching the last match from the big tournament in Mobile the, the with Tuesday before that, in which uh, I beat Luthez in the finals of the tournament, and I was going to end up wrestling Harley for the NWA championship on this coming Tuesday, the next Tuesday. So Charlie showed the last five minutes of this match between Luthez and I, which was 45 minutes long. It was a long match. And uh, and there were 9,000 people in attendance that night. We were in, that, uh, in the main arena in Mobile, and that was a big building. And, uh, wow, the, for the last five minutes of this match, uh, fans were going crazy. And Lou and I were ending up, man, we basically had a classic, clean wrestling match which you didn't see much, uh, especially not 45-minute ones. And Lou was not familiar with the fuller leg lock that my dad had uh, invented many years ago. And at the end of the match, I was lucky enough to get my fuller leg lock on him at the end of the match. Otherwise, I couldn't have beat Lou this. 
<laughs> but I could beat anybody with a hat hold and that. And he had never seen it, so he didn't. He, he wasn't expecting it, and he didn't know how to defend against it. Yeah. So so then Charlie showed an interview with this that was made immediately following that match after we had that forty five minute match, and I just beat Lou with the fuller leg lock. Uh, uh, then they took a, the cameras into the dressing room and Lou made an interview and he put me and my family over big time. I, he was, it was unreal. He talked about my grandfather, Roy, and he talked about Roy's brother, Herb, who was at one time the world junior heavyweight champion. And, uh, and he stayed undefeated for five years, Herb, with that championship until he had a car wreck and they had to give the title up. So Lou, had, Lou knew all that history, and Lou admitted that he had never seen the hole that I just beat him with in the ring, you know. And he said, and he said, but he said, but I'm not surprised because this is the third generation of this Welch family, you know. And he says, uh, you know, uh, I'm not surprised at all that 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 Ron's father invented this hole. And he said, you know, it worked so well on me because. He says, Ron's father was 6'3", almost 6'4". He had long legs. And he goes, Ron's legs are a lot longer than that. He <laughs> said, you know? And if you and you have to have long legs to make that whole work. So he said, you know, and quite honestly, it was a great interview. He said, when, I, when he hooked it on me and he rolled me on my back, and there I was with both my legs sticking up in the air, he said, I realized he had caught me in an inside toe hole. He goes, I, I knew the hold, but I'd never seen it done that way. And he said, uh, you know, that hold was one of the best wrestling holes in the world. You could make anybody give up with it. You know, and he said, uh, and he got it using a totally different new technique. So so he said, since I'd never seen it done that way, uh, you know, uh, uh, that there was no way, he said, I could even crawl to the ropes because we're both laying on our backs with our legs connected. You're dragging two people to the ropes. And he said, so he said, I figured out pretty quick. I can't make, I can't get to the ropes. And then he said, and then when he started applying the pressure, he said, I knew right then. He says, this is not only an inescapable hole, but he can break my leg. And he said, I gave up right then. <laughs> I, said, you know, I, I know the hole and you, you can break people's legs with it. So, so he finished then this interview by wishing me good luck following week, basically. And he said, uh, again, he said, you uh, wish Ron good luck next week because he's wrestling. In my opinion, I've got tremendous respect for probably one of the greatest NWA world champions ever, Harley Race. And he said, if I tell you this right now, uh, then during the interview, finished the interview, he says, I tell you this right now, if he gets that hold on Harley Race, he's going to be the next world heavyweight champion. Wow. So, so the former heavyweight champion, Lou Thez, said all of this about you, your family, and the match that you just had. Wow. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, 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 blew, it blew me away. I mean, I'm sitting there. I hadn't seen what he said. This was my first chance to see it. So I figured, you know, he was going to make some kind of interview. Maybe put me over some for the match. Uh, but uh, – but I had no idea, you know, what he what he said uh, until I saw this tape. It was like, wow, what a geez, It was unreal how good he put me over. So, like uh, everybody else watching and wrestling's all all wrestlers all over the world, 
I had great respect for Luthes. I mean, Luthes had real class, um, maybe as much or more so than any of our world champions. Uh, he was he was a class act. So then Charlie said, you know, Ron, now we've got somebody on the phone here. And he, he said, we've been on, he's been on phone for the whole time here. There's a speaker on this phone. He could hear that interview from Luthes. And he said, he's also heard everything that's been said since we sat down here and he's in Toronto, Canada, and he's going to be wrestling you next Tuesday night. And he says, a Harley race wants to speak to you, Ron. So, uh, Next thing, man, uh, here comes that old raspy, deep down, gravelly voice of Harley came on, you know, and he said, uh, first thing out of his mouth, he said, uh, Ron Fuller, uh, this is your worst nightmare, Harley race. <laughs> and he said, I just heard what Luthes had to say about you and your daddy's hole. And he says, I'm going to make you a promise. You're never going to get that hold on me. And, uh, and then he said, you know, he said, I keep records about my, me- my best opponents. I never knew this either. He said, I keep records on my best opponents. And he said, I looked you up, you know, and he said, you and I, over a period of the last seven years, have had seven world championship matches in four different states and one Texas death match. Mm-hmm. And you've only won one of those matches the Texas death match, and it wasn't for the 10 pounds of gold. Mm. Uh, you're not going to get that hold on me that uh, beat, you beat Des with or win my belt. He said, because, you know, he says, I'm not that good old guy Luthes is. He says, huh. we're not going to have a clean old all-American wrestling match like you and Lou must have had. <laughs> he said, we're going to get down and dirty. Oh, my God. You're going to have to hurt me. He said, worse than a broken leg to make me quit. So I cut him off at that point. You know, I'd heard enough. I mean, I didn't expect him to be there anyway. Mm -hmm. So I told him, uh, I told him, I said, you're right about those seven world championship matches with me. And and I I reminded him, I said, I got to remind you that you only beat me in one of them. And that was the very first one that we ever had. It was in 1973 in Miami, Florida, and I was only 25 years old. Mm-hmm. And I said, and now I'm 32 years old, and I just beat probably the best world champion of all time, Luthes. Wow. Uh, now, this is my eighth try at your belt, and uh, this is going to be the biggest win of my life. And the studio crowd popped, man. They exploded. You know? yeah. So, uh, and then I, I said, you know, I'm ready for this one. I've never tried to get that hold on you, but if I can do it to Thez, I can damn sure do it to you, Harley. <laughs> so I got another pop from the studio. <laughs> I bet. God. So then he comes back on at the end, and he was a lot madder and when he came back on than he was during the first part of this interview. And he said, uh, you know, we've never wrestled down there on the Gulf Coast. He said, I'm going to make you and every one of those rednecks listening down there a promise. He said, you're going to lose in the middle of that ring next Tuesday night because he says, I'm still the greatest wrestler on God's God's green earth. earth. Wow. That is one of the best personality profiles I think I've ever heard. I bet those 10,000 seats were not going to be enough to hold them all. After that, wow. So 
So how do you follow that, Stud? What was next? Well, Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin, who were in the opening of the show, were there in the third segment, but they're defend. They were uh, uh, taking their new tag belts out there, and uh, they were actually wrestling on the third match of the show. And they, the studio crowd was so angry with their cockiness, man, especially after they went out and they had two young guys. And they, I mean, they chewed these guys up, and, and literally at the end of it, they spit on them. Uh, you know, and, and then they came back uh, in the very last match, which was the Stomper defending his championship. They're going to be defending against Charlie Cook, which is a heck of an opponent for him. And, uh, you know, so out comes not just Don Carson with the Stomper, but Jimmy and Norvell came back because they, they knew they had pissed off the crowd so bad. They, they just, you know, they wanted to get more heat. They couldn't stand just getting a little bit. <laughs> so Charlie gave the Charlie Cook gave the Stomper a, a real run for his money and his belt, man. At, at the end of the match, when him and the Stomper were, were kind of fighting each other and running and switching each other down the ropes, uh, Golden and Austin drew the referee's attention. That's all Don Carson needed, man. Just an opportunity, and he reached in there and jerked Charlie Cook's legs out from underneath him. Uh, Stomper covered him, and Carson uh, dove on his legs. The referee didn't see Carson at all, discounted him out, thought that the, you know, he was down for the pin. Wow, so another great TV. All four upcoming championship matches, of course, we're focused on. I can't wait for the next part. So what happened in Mobile the following Tuesday night? Well, Big C... Got the best of Roy Lee Welch in his match. Uh, Charlie Cook won over Don Fargo in the United States Junior Heavyweight Championship match. Randy Rose beat Tony Charles and won Tony Charles' United States Heavyweight Championship. Did not expect that. I'm sure no one in the crowd expected that to happen. In the Southeastern Tag Championship match, the champions, Jimmy Golden, Norvell Austin, they pinned Eddie Boulder and they retained their championship. Uh, so then in the Southeastern Championship, I quit match. The Big C came out to manage the Stomper instead of Don Carson. And the Big C got the microphone and said, you know, Don Carson is sick and he couldn't be here and I'm going to take his place tonight. And uh, you can imagine how that got over. Did he sound like Don Carson a little bit? <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> or look like Don Carson. And he had the black glove on, too. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, you know, everybody knew who the heck it was. Yeah. You know? So at the end of the match, so when the referee got knocked down accidentally, Joe ended up with his bear hug on the stomper. So Big C, referee's down. Big C just comes in the ring uh, behind Lou Duke's back. He loads up his glove, and he hits Joe Duke in the back of the head with his glove, and down he went, and uh, Big C crawled out of the ring again. And uh, so then the Stomper had to <laughs> had to bodily pick up the Duke and put him in a barrel. So when the referee got up, he sees Le, that the Stompers uh, got the Duke in a bear hug, and he goes over and he raises the Duke's arm three times, and uh, and three times he drops it. Because, uh, you know, Big C had knocked him cold with, a, <laughs> with his loaded glove. So the referee stopped the match and he declared to stop for the winner. Now, I mean, uh, LeDuc didn't say, I give up. 
But uh, he couldn't say, I give up. He was unconscious. So, you know, yeah. referee couldn't continue that. So he that's he did the only thing he did. I bet the crowd went crazy on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was Mobile, man. And, huh. and we both know what that means. Right? <laughs> uh, you know, crazy crowd anyway. And thankfully, the building was so packed with people that they had a hard time getting to the ring if they'd want to have a ride. You know, it was just <laughs> crammed. I'm sorry, folks. We don't have room for rioting tonight. Wow. <laughs> All right. All right. So move to the big one. Your match with the one and only Harley Race. Well, it was a one-hour time limit match. And uh, and probably of these, uh, this is the eighth match I had had with him. It, it was probably the best match we'd ever had together. Uh, mm-hmm. And I kept going for my fuller leg lock through the entire match. And Harley kept getting away. Uh, just barely getting away. They'd get to the ropes, and then he would get out on the floor. And, uh, you know, then he spent a lot of time getting out of the ring, killing time, staying outside as long as he could, stalling, you know, and and that got tremendous heat, man. I mean, the fans wanted to get him, you know. He just he wouldn't give me the opportunity to, to get that hold on him. So uh, around the 45-minute mark, uh, he – he, I busted him up, and he was bleeding. And with five minutes left, with five minutes left in the match, the timekeeper started calling out the last five minutes of the match. He counted down the minutes. It was five minutes to go, then a minute later, four minutes to go. Building, everybody in the building was on its feet. During this five minutes, I kept getting these near pins, and he would barely kick out, and then had another one, and another one. And then went down to the last minute. And about the last minute of the minute left, he stopped me, picked me up, the body slammed me. I dropped down behind him, and I hooked the hole, man. That building erupted. It wow. exploded. Wow. Uh, so Harley was right in the middle of the ring, <laughs> right in the, desperately. You know, he's looking <laughs> around, and he sees it. You know, he saw what, what Thez saw. Thez went ahead and gave up, but Harley, Harley, Harley being Harley, he was he wasn't going to go that way. Yeah. So he was right in the middle of the ring, and he and he's trying to drag us both backwards, grabbing hands full of the mat, and trying to drag us to get to the ropes. And uh, then uh, finally, he ended up uh, couldn't get there, and uh, he was just flailing with his arms, man. And Nouncer started uh, counting down the last ten seconds and. The crowd was so loud that I literally didn't know if he had given up or not when the bell rang. Wow. You know, because I couldn't hear. You couldn't hear the bell, basically. You know, so the referee then had to pull us apart, you know, because when you got that hold on, you can't really separate your legs from the guy that you've got it on. So he has to kind of untangle our legs. And I got up first, obviously, and I had my hand in the air. The building exploded. They thought, like I did, that I'd won the world championship. Right. You know, and Harley's still laying there. He couldn't move, man. He was just laying there. He was laying on one side, and he was furiously rubbing his right leg. That was the leg that you put the hold on. Mm-hmm. So the referee uh, pulled my hand down, told the announcer to tell everybody that the match was a one-hour time limit draw. God. Man, Okay. Still, it's a great ending to a phenomenal night of wrestling. So attendance had to be through the roof. 
Well, Montgomery and Dothan, I'm going to tell all three like we normally do. Montgomery and Dothan's house dropped a little bit because, uh, you know, they had, uh, they, they had, uh, I think, uh, some of the fans actually came from Montgomery that uh, would have been in that house there in Montgomery. They came to Mobile. Yep. Yep. So that house dropped a little bit from uh, 4,800 down to 4,500. Uh, Dothan's uh, house dropped a little bit from 49 down to 46. I mm-hmm. think hopefully some people mm-hmm. came from Dothan as well. And uh, you know, so, and, but for the first time in this big building, now we're in the uh, main arena mm-hmm. that held 10,100 people. We sold out. Wow. We actually had uh, the actual announced attendance was 10,300. Yeah. So in those three cities that, that, week uh on the monday through friday we had 19,400 fans in three shows which was a new all-time southeastern record either in knoxville or down there on the gulf that's incredible all right the cards were the same in all three markets except for that match that was going to happen in mobile yeah all right so did you go pay harley that night like you did the first sellout in Knoxville history with him, because to me, that's, I think that's one I remember. I will always remember that, that what I thought was a very personal moment with only you and only the world champion in the dressing room. Well, you know, uh, yeah. And I did, I did, you know, I waited, uh, we were obviously in the last match, uh, it lasted an hour. There was hardly anybody in the dressing room anyway. And, uh, you know, so, and, you know, th- this card had the kind of same raise prices as that one in Knoxville that we had in 1977 that set the all-time car- crowd record in that building. It's still still a record today. Uh, so uh, this crowd, this crowd, though, because this building held 10,000 was almost twice as big as the Coliseum in Knoxville. So after I showered, there was almost... Uh, no one in the building at that point, and especially nobody in his dressing room. And I took uh, $100 bills. I had sent Roy up to the box office to bring me his money in cash. Mm-hmm. And I took $100 bills again, just like I'd done in Knoxville, uh, into his dressing room. And uh, when I went in there, he was hobbling <laughs> on his leg. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and I apologized, you know, I, for being stiff. You know, I said, they, you know, and it kind of as a joke, I said, the crowd made me do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, well, I was trying to make a joke out of it, but I knew that, you know, I was excited and and I and I really hurt him a little bit. So was you know, the, was his pay similar to what you had in Knoxville? Well, I counted them out. I counted out hundred dollar bills to him, one at a time into his hand, same way I had done it in Knoxville. Right, uh, but this time it had a little bonus to it because it was more than the than the twenty. I had counted out twenty hundred dollar bills to him in Knoxville, which was two thousand dollars. Right. This time it was forty one hundred dollars. Whoa, four thousand dollars. Now in today's money, that was sixteen thousand dollars. Right. I mean that's a it's a pretty good payoff. Yeah, you know? for one match. Yeah, and, you know, and then when I finished up, uh, when I finished counting them out to him, uh, he smiled and he said, uh, you know, funny thing, Ron, he goes, uh, my leg don't hurt anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that's classic. <laughs> wow. 
So we had kind of set the template, man, for world title matches in that territory down there. Exactly, basically, as we had done in that first one in 1977 in Knoxville. Uh, this one-hour, 60-minute time limit Broadway match. Yeah. These matches are, they just, they just make your territory, they build your territory better than any type of match you can possibly have. Fans watch this for an hour, and they go home saying, my God, how can people do that? Yeah. How can anybody do that? Right. So uh, uh, it was a great way to end the night. Wow. No doubt. So obviously Harley had to be feeling a little better after 40 $100 bills, but you know, he was feeling it the next day. Cause I bet you were too. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't do it. You don't have those kind of matches and, and get up the next morning and, no. and uh, ready <laughs> to roll. <laughs> but it was so much more than just one match for Harley race, because what you got was every bit of Harley with the promos, everything that led up to the match, the way he sold you just over and over or any opponent that he was, he was that professional. And then, and, and, you know, one more thing I need to add that Carly's credit, Dave, uh, mm -hmm. that probably was not the only hour he did that, that week. Wow. He probably did three, maybe four of those that week. Defending other, defending his title. Defending his title with other guys around the country. Wow. Other great wrestlers. Wow. Amazing, amazing stuff. God, this has been a tremendous stud cast and uh, appropriately named Carnival's Characters and Harley Race. All right. After all this, we will have time for a learning tree question, Ron. So let's get to that. I'm glad we do because we've got a great one for you this time, stud. It has to do with Harley Race. Howard Hawkins, Joplin, Missouri, says, close to, or close to where Harley was born, he asked if you know anything about Harley Race's car accident in 1961 that killed his wife and almost killed Harley Race. Yeah, well, you know, as a matter of fact, I do. Uh, you know, uh, Mr. Hawkins, uh, what, what a great question. You know, and, uh, and to me, uh, this is probably one of the best stories about how tough Harley Race was as a human being. I mean, uh, this car wreck deal and uh, his life, his whole life, Harley's whole life was really a story of just downright determination as a human being. Uh, he had polio as a boy, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and he was very weak as a child. And, uh, and after struggling for years to get his strength, he started wrestling. He actually started wrestling professionally at 15 years old. So, you know, I mean, he was, he, he was an amazing, amazing person. Wow. So then he once told me, he told me this story, that, you know, the first territory that he ever worked in was Tennessee. And it was working for my grandfather, Roy. And he told me how much he admired Roy and her. He said, your family members were unbelievable. You know, he goes, wow, they, and they treated me great. I'm just a 15, 16, 17-year-old kid there, you know. So uh, he said uh, he met his first wife in Tennessee during this time frame, and he married her, and, uh, and uh, she, she became pregnant about the time he was getting ready to leave. So he had re wrestled for this guy in St. Joseph, Missouri, a promoter 
named uh, Karras. Gus Karras is his name. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he had started wrestling by, in the business for Gus Karras. And uh, he had, and Gus had called him and, and he'd been in Tennessee for a couple of years. And he said, why don't you come home? I want you to wrestle for me here, you know. And he goes, I'm sure you've gotten a lot better. So, uh, so he, he, he gave Roy and them a notice and, uh, and they were leaving territory, uh, him and his wife, to return home to the state. It was in 1961. Uh, he was only 18 years old at this point. Mm. So him and his bride are leaving Tennessee on their way home to Missouri. And uh, they were pretty close to his father's home. He told me this story, you know, and he says he, a big truck sideswiped him, man, in a, in a big snowstorm. So, so both he and his pregnant wife were pronounced dead at oh the scene God. of the accident. Wow. Both of them. And, uh, and as they were being carried to the funeral home, uh, a guy that was in the, in the, in the, fu- in the uh, car with him, the, uh, the hearse with him, saw him move. He was like, I think he moved. And, he, and then they stopped and they went and checked on him. And so uh, they took Harley to the hospital. But his wife and, and his baby were gone. They, they died. So, uh, so he had... Tremendous injuries to both of his legs, and that's and then they had a, a, some upper body injuries as well. But a couple of days later, they had repaired uh, as good as they could his left leg, which was which was really bad, but the right one was much worse. And uh, they were preparing to amputate his right leg. They were going to take off his right leg. He's 18 years old, and so uh, yeah. the old promoter Gus Karras that had sent for him to come home. He, he, and he didn't show up. He finally found him in this hospital. And they had already sedated uh, Harley, and they, they were going to amputate his knee, his leg, take his leg off at the knee, from the knee down, his right yeah. leg. So uh, Gus Karras finds out that he's in the operating room, and uh, he just bolts in there, you know, and he says, wait a minute. Now, you know, they're, they're just, he's already sedated. They're about to take his leg off. And Kara says, absolutely not. You don't touch it. Don't touch it. Right. And uh, so he told, uh, you know, the doctor, you know, that, uh, that, you know, uh, you got to do your best to fix it up. You don't, you're not taking it off. You don't know this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. he'll, 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 he's unbelievable. He's going to do something mar- miraculous here if, if possible. So, uh, so he told uh, the the doctor told Harley, you know, uh, when he came to and they uh, went ahead and worked on him and did what they could the best they could with him there. He told him that uh, you're you, you're going to be lucky if you ever walk again. And he says there's no chance. Harley asked him, "Well, how about Barassel?" And he says there's absolutely no chance you're ever going to wrestle again. No chance. Right. So uh, <laughs> so Harley said. Harley said, he said, I told him, he said, I'll tell you what, Doc, he goes, uh, uh, I'm going to send you some wrestling tickets to my first match when I get back in the ring. <laughs> and, so, 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 and, and by golly, that's what happened. So, so uh, thanks for your question, Mr. Hawkins. I mean, uh, you know, they put four screws in Harley's right knee. Uh, he wore braces on both of his legs for 21 months after the surgeries. 
and as a man of his word, he sent his doctor two, two ringside tickets his first match two years after the wreck. So that is why Harley Race is the baddest man on God's green earth. Wow. You know, we recorded that story, and, and thanks for telling it again because it reminded me, and I don't know if you told it exactly the same way, but we recorded that story about two years ago and put it on your YouTube Southeastern Rewind channel as a stud story about Harley Race. Every time I hear that story, obviously, it's just a thing where you look back at this legend and you you have to have more respect for the legendary Harley race. Wow. It seems like I say this every week, every week. Now it seems like these stud cast have always been great, but somehow they keep getting better and better. I get chill bumps. When you tell these Harley race stories, that is, that's just amazing. This one has something for everyone, carnivals and their relationship to wrestlers, characters like Harley race, one of the greatest cards in wrestling history, all that led up to it, what happened during it and after it, and even an uplifting story on the end. So where do we ride next week, Stud? Well, there's a, going to be a surprise for everybody in the, uh, in the first week of March. We're going to be riding into the first week of March, 1980. There's going to be a new mass wrestler arriving in Southeastern. He's going to look very familiar to everybody. And he's going to have a strange name. He's going to call himself the Georgia Jawjacker. And he's going to be making his first ever appearance in Southeastern Gulf Coast. And right off the bat, he's going to get a shot at the Mongolian Stomper, the man who sent him away almost three months earlier. <laughs> and then in our next Hidden History lesson, we're going to follow Roy to where Dutch Mantel sent him to Ohio. And we're going to begin the rest of Roy's life journey as a wrestler as uh, as we take and we take uh, get into this next real hidden history wrestling lesson uh, it's going to be uh, a remarkable story the beginning of a remarkable story wow three words i can't wait hey folks you know the deal on facebook find ron at ron fuller welch the tennessee stud like and follow him there and automatically become friends with a legend on Twitter now known as X. Also, he's at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow him there too. Check out his fantastic website at tnstud.com. This stud cast will be there and every stud cast ever done. This is number 339. So there are 339 of these stud cast that are there. Everyone ever done shop the stud store too. You get 43 super stud cast. Four different 8x10 photos, the thrilling lion novel, Brutus, personally autographed to you if you like, and t-shirts still on sale for $15.99. The kicker is it's all free shipping. Subscribe now at YouTube Southeastern Rewind and get the best in old school wrestling. 400 videos. 400 videos, the last 116 stud casts, 52 stud stories, 103 short rides with the stud, and now 14 ask the stud question and answer shows. 
that are filled with variety. I mean, a real variety of wrestling history. All of this exclusively YouTube, Southeastern Rewind, the best deal in old school school wrestling. Simple to find. Go to YouTube in the search bar, put in Southeastern Rewind, and boom, just like that, it's the first one that pops up. So you got to check it out. Don't forget those who live in the Gulf Coast area. Ron is going to be making an appearance in Ozark, Alabama's Civic Center. Saturday night, set this on your calendar. Saturday night, March 23rd of 2024. That's only a few Saturday nights away. Along with Scott Armstrong and Wildcat Wendell Cooley at a great local wrestling card there. Stop by and say hello to the Tennessee stud. Once again, Saturday night, March 23rd, Ozark Civic Center. Man, this has been a great one, stud. Any final comments today? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm looking forward to coming coming down there in your area again, Dave. It's been a couple of years since I've been down there, and I sure would like to say hello to a lot of people in that area. I love that part of the country, and uh, I want to thank everybody for their kind comments about the last few studcasts. been getting tremendous reaction about this Vince McMahon uh, situation uh, and how he— uh, through, through the wrestling companies and the wrestling business under the bus. And uh, thank everybody for your continued support. Uh, feel free to tell your friends and neighbors about us and take care of yourselves and others and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.